Good morning. Welcome to our 10 o'clock worship sermon. I am Stephen Nazera, the pastor, one of the elders here at Calvary Baptist Church in Phillipsburg, Kansas. Uh, This morning we are in chapter 17 of the 1689 Confession, and we are going to examine the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, Paragraph 1 of the Confession says in chapter 17, Those God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end, and be eternally saved because the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, he still he still brings about and nourishes them faith, repentance, love, joy, and all the graces of the spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, Yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The first thing that I want to do this morning is to properly define what the perseverance of the saints means. This doctrine does not mean that all those who profess to have faith will persevere. There are many men and many women who uh, falsely claim to be Christians, but are not. This doctrine has nothing to do with them. This doctrine does not include those who just have been baptized, who attend the local church, or who have parents who are Christians. This doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, doesn't pertain to to those who merely, who only attend church. Just because you've been baptized does not mean God promises. Just because you've been dipped in water, just because you are born of Christian parents, God does not make the promise that he will save you until the end. Uh, It does not mean that you're saved. There are many people who profess to be believers, but at some point, they will fall away from the faith that they claim to possess. And Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Jesus says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear... Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground. The ones, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things 
enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. According to Jesus, many people will hear the preaching of the gospel. They will understand it. They'll join the church. And, and for a time, they'll even live a Christian life. But it's only outwardly. The word that was sown doesn't take root in the heart. And because of that, when adversity comes, when suffering comes, when a desire for the world or to live again worldly overwhelms them, they will fall away from the faith that they claim to possess. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not pertain to those types of people. Churches are full of people who join because it's, you know, it's morally right. Uh, they join to find a good Christian wife or a good Christian husband. They join because they want their children to be influenced by other Christian children. People join the church uh, because of financial support. People claim to be a Christian based on some kind of emotional response. There was a young woman in the church once uh, who became a member along with her family because she claimed to be saved at a Christian rock concert. No repentance, no faith. And that young woman is no longer part of the church. It's sad. It's, it's heartbreaking. But people who are not truly regenerated, they will fall away. They will go back to the world. They will turn their back on the faith that they once claimed to possess, but they don't truly possess it. These types of people, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not pertain to. It doesn't apply to them. They do not have a sure and living faith. When adversity and suffering and desire for the world overwhelms them, they leave the church. And by their lifestyle, they deny the faith that they once claimed to possess. And scripture verifies this. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become that it might become plain that they all are not of us. When you talk about the doctrine or the perseverance of the saints, this is a doctrine, this is a teaching that only pertains to people who have genuine faith in Christ. They are effectually called by God. God regenerates them and gives them a new spirit, a new heart and mind. They are sanctified. And God promises that no matter the person, no matter the adversity, no matter the suffering, that, that the worldly flesh, the sinful flesh, no matter the pull that it has on you, God will cause you to persevere. 
And so the, the perseverance of the saints, this doctrine contains two principles. Principle number one, those who have been effectually called by God cannot lose their salvation. And the second principle is those who are effectually called by God will persevere to the end. Those are the two principles. That's what the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints teaches. Those whom God has effectually called and given them his spirit, they will never run the risk of losing that salvation. And the second principle is they will persevere to the end. God will strengthen them. God will guard them. He will keep them. No matter the adversity, no matter the suffering. And like I said, even, even the desires of that sinful flesh that still remains with us. And, and we'll get into this later. Even the sins, even if when we fall into a season of sins, that can't even wreck your faith. It can't. If you belong to God, you belong to him forever. And so the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints only pertains to those who God has effectually called. It does not pertain to everyone inside the church. It doesn't pertain to everyone who claims to be a Christian. It doesn't pertain to everyone who has been dipped in water. It only pertains to those who God effectually calls. And like I said, notice the doctrine doesn't teach that those who are effectually called will not sin. That's not what we're talking about here. Perseverance of the saints doesn't mean that we'll never sin. Perseverance of the saints doesn't even mean that we won't fall into sin for a period of time. The confession confirms that we'll still sin. Christians will even fall into a season of sin. Look at paragraph three of the confession. It says, they may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a time. But God still has you. God still has you. He will, he will awaken you from that stupor. He will awaken you from that dead in sin. Even that series and season of sin if you're truly called by God, he will awaken you out of that. He will bring you to repentance. He will get that prodigal son and return him back to the home. He will find that lost sheep and return him to the fold. Perseverance of the saints does not teach that we'll be perfect. We won't be morally perfect. Perfectionism is a doctrine that was first taught by John Wesley in the 18th century. He was the English theologian. Many consider him to be the father of Methodism. He taught the doctrine of perfectionism. According to Wesley, Christians can reach perfection here in life. He believed that prior to our death, we can reach, he didn't call it perfectionism, he called it Complete sanctification. According to Wesley, that the, the Christian can experience complete sanctification, which is essentially the perfection, the moral perfection 
in this life. And he would be wrong. John Wesley wrote a book called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. And he preferred the term complete sanctification. Now to Wesley's credit, he didn't believe perfectionism was instantaneous. He didn't believe Christians became perfect right when they became believers. No, he believed that over time, that could be accomplished, but nevertheless, it could be accomplished in this life, and, and he was wrong. The biggest problem that I have with perfectionism, other than it's against scripture, but the phil philosophical problem that I have with perfectionism is that it teaches that we are independent from God. And, and that's... And that's basically the, the point of every false doctrine. All false doctrine teaches us that we can live independent from God. But the problem with false doctrine is, is that they hide behind attractive things. And what I mean by that is perfection of them. Like which one of us doesn't want to be sin free? Right? We all do. We all desire to be sinless. Christians hate sin, right? We we hate when we fall into sin. We hate when we commit treason against God. There isn't a Christian that doesn't want to be morally perfect. And we know eventually that will happen once we reach glorification. But in this life, that's what haunts us. Is our sin. The traces of sin in the inward members. So false doctrines like perfectionism... They seem attractive to us because they, they hide their falseness behind good things. Like who wouldn't want to be perfect? But again, the philosophical problem with these false doctrines is that they teach us that we can be independent from God, that we can live independently from God. And that's not true. That's the farthest thing from the truth. We still require God's grace. We, st we still need his mercy. We still need his forgiveness. Repentance is still a fruit of regeneration. Those who have truly been born again will repent their whole life. We depend on God's work of sanctification. We, we, we must deny perfectionism because of the reality that we still fall into sin. But because of the Holy Spirit, his work in us, the correction that we receive from other Christians, the leadership of the church elders, having godly parents, through these things, God promises those who he effectually calls that we will not totally or finally fall away from the state of grace. Since the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints involves our redemption, everything that involves our redemption is God's work alone. That's a, a good indicator. Does 
it involved redemption. Yeah, then it's God's work alone. God works independently for man in saving the soul. Our perseverance hinges on God's grip on us, not on our grip for God. In order for God's people to be lost, to be totally or finally lost, God has to change his mind about us. But the confession says, and the scripture confirms, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. The term irrevocable means without repentance. In other words, God doesn't change his mind. God's elect will always be his elect. God's elect will always be those who he calls. Those who he calls will always be regenerated. Those who are regenerated will always be justified. Those who are justified will always be adopted into his family. Those who are adopted into God's family will always be sanctified. And those who are sanctified will always persevere. And those who persevere will be glorified in the end. That's how that works. So, since God and his callings are irrevocable, that entire chain of salvation is irrevocable. God is unable to change his mind. Even though our struggle with sin continues and remains throughout our entire lives. We'll fall into sin. We can even remain in a state of sin for long periods of time. But the Lord will bring you back into a state of grace. He will bring you out of that state of sin. And that's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God promises to keep us. He promises to preserve us until the day of our actual redemption. Although we'll sin and we'll fall into many different sins, we will never totally or finally fall away from the state of grace. Since we belong to the Lord, he will keep us to the end. Even if we fall into sin, even when we fall into egregious sin, God will come upon our conscience. He'll wake us from our sleep. He'll draw us to himself for repentance, and we will receive from him grace, mercy, and the forgiveness of those sins. That sheep returns to the fold. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, can we prove the doctrine of the perseverance of saints from Scripture? And the answer is yes. The Scripture gives us great confidence that our salvation is eternally secured. And we never run the risk of losing it. We receive this confidence from Scripture. Well, we're at Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a part in that 
scripture I just read, Romans 8, 35 through 39, that Paul takes from the Old Testament. He quotes the prophet Elijah, who was being hunted by Ahab and his evil wife, Jezebel. And Elijah was scared that he would lose his life, that the king and his wife were killing all the prophets, that that he would be separated from God in this life, that this would be the end of him. And the scripture is no, not even death separates us. The worst thing that we can experience in this life is death. That's the worst thing. It's worse than torture. It's worse than suffering, adversity. It's worse than sin. Death is the worst thing we can experience in this life. And Paul says, not even that can separate you from the love of Christ. I mean, what great confidence that is. That even at your death, the unknown is clearly known to us. That we'll be with God. Because God will not lose us, not even to death. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you get that? According to Paul, God through Christ will sustain you to the end, and you will appear guiltless on the day of judgment. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 is where I get the, the term confidence from, and I use that a lot. Confident in salvation, confident in God's love, confident in God's will. Why? Because I get it right here from Paul. And I am sure of this, Paul says. I am confident. Well, what are you confident in, Paul? That what God started in you, he will complete it. What's the beginning work of God in your life? Election. And Paul says, since God has elected you for salvation, he will carry that plan out. Confident in that. Well, anyone can cherry pick scripture from the Bible. You can make it say whatever you want to say. Okay, well, what about entire chapters of Scripture? Can I manipulate entire chapters of Scripture to say what I want it to say? Take John chapter 6, for example. John chapter 6 begins with Jesus feeding of a crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. He only had five loaves of bread. He had two small fish. Jesus blesses the food in order to feed and satisfy the entire crowd. But here's the kicker. There was plenty of leftover. Although there was only five loaves and two small fish and at least 5,000 people. That's just counting the men. The scripture says 
the people had their fill. And there were leftovers. Well, what's the big deal about that? What does the scripture testify about God's grace? That it is sufficient to save all those whom God desires to save without losing any. And that's what this miracle of the 5,000 describes. God's sufficient grace to feed all these people. God's grace is sufficient not just to feed people, but to save them. And not just to save them, but not to lose them. And not just to lose them, but not to lose any. Not to lose any. None of these people went away hungry. They were all satisfied. How much more are those who are satisfied of God's elect? But John 6 continues. It continues to testify of God's power to keep and to satisfy all those who come to him by faith and not lose any. This is what this entire chapter is about. God's ability, his power to satisfy and to completely save all those who come to him by faith. Verse 27, Jesus tells the crowd, to not work for food that perishes, but for food that leads to eternal life. And the crowd says, well, what is this work? And Jesus said, food that leads to eternal life is faith in the Son of God. Faith in the Son of God leads to eternal life. Jesus didn't say might. Well, it, it could. No. It does. Verse 35, Jesus says to the crowd, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You want to talk about eternal security. Chapter 6 of John 38 through 40. But that's not all. Verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. This entire chapter is about the perseverance of the saints. Those who are effectually called by God come to Christ. They come to Christ by faith. They believe in the gospel. God saves them and he promises to never lose them. He promises to never cast them out. They will have eternal life, period. Period. So yeah, yeah, we cherry pick scriptures, 
but we also got an entire chapter that testifies to God's preserving the saint for eternal life. Do any denominations teach against the perseverance of the saints? Yeah, several do. The Assembly of God denomination opposes the perseverance of the saints. Uh, In August 2017, the Assembly of Churches in the Assemblies of God gathered together at their general session. The leaders of the churches uh, redid their bylaws and they wrote Article 9, Section B1, which states the General Council of the Assemblies of God disapproves of the unconditional security position which holds that it is impossible for a person once saved to be lost. Do you get that? The Assemblies of God denomination wrote in their bylaws in August 2017, Article 9, Section B1, that they do not believe in the perseverance and the saints. They disapprove of unconditional security. They disapprove of it. Now, for those that are listening in our community, do we have any of these churches? Yeah, there's two of them. We have Heartland Worship and the First Assembly of God of Phillipsburg. Last year, actually two years ago, I was in our local pizza hut. Uh, and the pastors of these two churches, Heartland Worship and the First Assembly of God in Phillipsburg, met with me. And they asked me privately about Calvinism, which I hold to, and the differences between what I believe and what they believe about salvation. And one of the doctrines that I brought up was the security of the believer, the perseverance of the saint. They denied it. They consider it heresy to believe in the eternal security of the believer. The Assemblies of God Church believes it's heresy. Earlier I mentioned John Wesley, the church that he founded, the Methodist Church. That denomination does not believe in the eternal security of the believer. And we have a Methodist Church in our community. If you believe, rather, let me, let me say that again. If you reject the eternal security of the believer, you must also reject justification by faith alone. This is why. Because the Bible teaches all those who God justifies by faith, he will keep forever. If you reject God's monergistic work and the perseverance of the saints, you must reject justification by works. You have to. You have to deny it. The reason why you have to deny justification by faith, because justification by faith is a work of God. If you believe a sinner can lose his salvation, you have to believe that he's justified by his works then. Because if he was justified by God's work, he could never lose his sanctification. He could never lose his security. He could never lose his standing before God. 
But if you believe he can lose his standing before God, you must believe the only way he got that position is by his works. And not by faith. Not by God's works. Not by the works of Christ, but by his own works. You see how that necessarily follows? If you believe a Christian can lose his salvation, you must believe he obtained it by works. Because that's the only way he can lose it, if he gained it by works. And so that's the problem that I have with the Assemblies of God, the Methodist churches. Now, what about the scriptures that warn of apostasy? And, and that's what they'll bring up. Uh, the, the Methodist pastors that I met with for lunch, they brought that up. But Pastor Stephen, what about the, the scriptures that talk about apostasy? And the Bible does talk about apostasy. The Bible does talk about people who fall away from the faith. There are examples of people who have fallen away from the faith. Esau, Judas, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon the Magician. All of these people, according to Scripture, fell away from the faith. But here's, here's the deal. Those people never had true faith to begin with. Peter calls Simon the Magician the son of the devil. The scripture calls Judas the son of perdition. He was a devil. The Bible says Esau didn't seek God by faith, but he was unholy. Ananias and Sapphira were under the control of Satan. These aren't people who had saving faith. right? You, you can't be under the possession of the devil and at the same time be under the possession of the spirit. Right? Those two things are contradictory. So men like Esau, Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira, Simon the Magician from Acts chapter 8, they were all under the control of the devil. They were not people who possessed true faith. They were pretending. It was a, uh, a, a false faith that they were professing. And even men like Judas, who was part of the disciples, Jesus says, I chose every one of you to serve as my disciples, but one of you is a devil. Just because people are in your church doesn't mean make them safe. That's why it is imperative for church leaders, the elders, to examine, to, uh, to speak with, to meet with. It is important for you to take the Lord's Supper every week so that you can examine your heart to see whether you are in the faith. If not, you will be like these people. You will fall away from the faith that you claim to possess. But that faith you claim to possess isn't really faith. And so these people that we meet in Scripture who, quote, have fallen away from the faith, quote, they haven't fallen away from their true faith. They've fallen away from the faith that they claimed to possess, which was never the true faith. Secondly, these passages in Scripture about apostasy 
serve as a warning for us. Not, not as an actual outcome for us. Because we, we can't totally or finally fall away from the Christian faith. We cannot totally or finally lose our salvation. But to stir us up by way of reminder, to stir us up by way of encouragement, to desire and to pursue holiness, God warns us about those who fall away. God warns us. He gives us examples. Not to threaten us, but to encourage us to, pro- to progress forward. To encourage us to spend time in prayer, to read the word, to, to bear good fruit, to examine our hearts, to repent of our sins. Because the moment we stop repenting, that, that proves we're not truly Christians. And so these passages about apostasy, they serve as a warning for the church to awake us from our sin, to awake us from our slothfulness, to seek the Lord. Because if we don't, that proves that we were never saved to begin with. Because God always and truly and finally and completely saves all true believers.